Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. It's the most wonderful time of the year. On today's program, I'll take a closer look at a long-running Chicago holiday tradition that's turning 80 this year. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review a Steppenwolf Theater World premiere. Later in the show, I'll catch up with acclaimed theater director Mary Zimmerman to talk about her play, The Steadfast Tin Soldier, which is quickly becoming a holiday tradition. And I'll check in with Chicago Magazine Dining Editor Amy Cavanaugh to talk about the current state of the local restaurant scene, and she'll share some of her favorite menu items from the past year. That's all coming up. Thanks for making some time for Arts and Culture this morning. One of Chicago's most popular holiday traditions is also one of the city's longest running. The Museum of Science and Industry's Christmas Around the World exhibit is celebrating its 80th anniversary this year. It started as a tradition in 1942 during the war. Uh, some people wanted to find a way to kind of lift morale around the city and thought that doing a decorated tree at the museum would be a great way to do that. So they reached out to different cultural groups from around the city. This is Jeff Bonomo, manager of special exhibitions at the Museum of Science and Industry. That first year there, were, there was one sad lone tree by the coal mine that was redecorated every night by about 12 different groups. And then 80 years, here we are, it's just grown into this kind of museum love tradition, Chicago love tradition, that people just come year in and year out to see the, the exhibition and celebrate their cultures as, as well as other people's cultures and see how we're more alike than we are different. That original tree, when you say that different groups would come and decorate it, was it tied to, it was like the ally countries? Yeah, that year was more of our ally countries, but over the years we've tried to diversify the, the, the globe of representation here at the museum. And so how many countries now? Now we have 55 trees representing countries, and we also have eight holidays of light that focus on holidays that are more about light and enlightenment and don't necessarily need a tree to do that. These days, more countries are represented, but the tradition of volunteers decorating the trees remains the same. Yeah, we're actually standing here in the rotunda as we speak, and you can see that we've had many different volunteer groups from around the city come and decorate trees. We provide a tree with lights, um, some refreshments, ladders, and then they bring all the decorations and their friends and family to help decorate these 12-foot trees that grace the main floor of the museum community groups or groups of residents? Sure, it's a whole bunch of different organizations as you can imagine over the 80 years that have come up. Sometimes it's church groups, sometimes like you said it's families, sometimes it's uh, the consulates. So it's a little different for every tree but they are all uh, labors of love. But yes, they do have a long history of kind of passing down the tradition of decorating the tree to families and generations. Um, so many days you'll see grandma, their kids and their grandkids here all decorating the tree uh, at the museum. And then, of course, we're standing in front of the showstopper, the big tree. Is the theme of that tree change every year? Yeah, we have a kind of an overall theme that we change every year. This year we're celebrating 80, as we've mentioned. And in the center rotunda here, we have a 45-foot grand tree uh, that'll be decked out in purples and pinks and golds and beautiful lights. It's actually a new tree this year, so we're excited to uh, have that this year. And we also are bringing back snow. So every 30 minutes, it actually snows right near the grand tree. So you can uh, be uh, warm inside and still get that great snow effect. It looks new. It's got that new tree smell, doesn't it? <laughs> How long does it take to, to decorate this big, this big guy? It takes about a week to decorate it from start to finish. So it's no small feat. Any estimate on how many folks engage with uh, Christmas around the world and the holiday of lights? Uh, it's thousands upon thousands of people. It's one of our busiest times of the year, so we always encourage people to get tickets in advance online, which now you can do time tickets, which helps with that process um, and ensures it's not as crowded throughout the day. Um, but yeah, I think we'll have a very good season this year after a couple seasons where it was not necessarily our, our normal holidays. Right, because I think in 2020 you guys put up the tree, but then the, the situation changed. 
Yeah, in 2020, I think we had Christmas Around the World open for about four days, and then unfortunately, due to all the mandates, we had to close the exhibition. Um, and then last year, we had a, a good, strong exhibition in attendance, but of course, there was the surge. But we're hopeful this year that guests can come back uh, and kind of celebrate like they used to. As Bonomo mentioned, Christmas isn't the only holiday being celebrated at the museum. 28 years ago, the institution introduced a companion exhibit, Holidays of Light. In 1994, we added Holidays of Light, so that's display cases for eight different uh, holidays, such as Diwali, Ramadan, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, that really focus on more of the kind of the candlelight and the light uh, behind their holiday traditions. The day I was at the museum, a volunteer was working on one of the Holidays of Light displays. Trying to figure out how to design the Kwanzaa exhibit for the Holiday of Lights portion of Christmas Around the World. This is Rosetta Cash. She's been putting up the museum's Kwanzaa display for around two and a half decades. I'm a member of the Comedic Institute of Chicago, and we are the ones who have been doing this for how many years now? Over 20-something years, has it been? Yeah, it's been a while. Do you change it up every year? I change, I try to change it up every year. The, the problem comes in is because the, the symbols don't change. So I have to try to come up with creative ways to make it, to use the same things, but make it look different each year. And that's a challenge. <laughs> that's a challenge because I have the big signs, I have the same symbols, because the symbols don't change. You have the, the canara or the candle holder, you have the unity cup, you have the corn, uh, you have the fruits and vegetables, which represents the harvest, because Kwanzaa means first fruits, and it's, it's in honor of the first harvest, of the holiday that was created for African Americans to get in touch, more in touch and more in tune with their African culture and heritage. So, uh, and it's not based around a person, but it's based around a, a more of community than a, a, a person. There are seven principles called the Nguzo Saba, which represented by the red and green candles and the black candles. The black candle is the single one that goes in the center. It represents unity. And the other candles represent other aspects of principles that we can live our lives by every day of the year. So Kwanzaa is from December 26th through January 1st. That celebration is a culmination of everything that you have done throughout the year. So each day a different candle is lit, starting with the black candle, alternating red and green, and acknowledging each of the principles that go along with those days. And at the end, uh, that last day is a day called Imani, which means faith. And that's the day that we have the Karamu or the feast when everybody comes together to celebrate the end of one year and the beginning of doing it all over again, even better for the next year. Okay. You get a lot of questions from folks walking up? Yes and no. She's fielding the question. This is my niece, Patrice. She's joining me this year and she's fielding the questions while I'm trying to figure out what to do. <laughs> But yeah, usually every year, it's, you know, people come up and they ask, and I try to answer. So, how did you uh, get started doing this? I got started doing this because I answered a phone call one day, uh, and they were looking for somebody to do a Kwanzaa exhibit for the museum, and here I am. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it is, it's been over 20 years. I want to say probably 26 or 27 years since I've been doing this. The Museum of Science and Industry's annual Christmas Around the World and Holidays of Light exhibits are on display through January 8th. And this year's Christmas Around the World exhibit is significant because it's number 80. You can find more information at msichicago.org.
And a quick reminder, if you enjoy listening to the art section on the radio every Sunday morning, make sure to check out the program's website over at theartsection.org. There you can find a whole bunch of additional content, including the ability to listen to past episodes and individual features. And you can also find pictures and links that go along with all the stories you hear on the program. Check out theartsection.org. Sisters, there were never such devoted sisters. Never had to have a chaperone, no, sir. I'm here to keep. And you are listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me now remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Barbonell. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. A parent's death sets in motion the story in Steppenwolf Theater's world premiere, Bald Sisters. The play comes from Cambodian-American playwright Bichette Chum. It follows two sisters grappling with their relationship in the aftermath of their mother's passing. Directed by Jessica Prudencio, this production is in the company's new In the Round space, the Ensemble Theater. Jonathan, we'll start with you. What did you think? I had some issues with the production, and also with the play. They're kind of separate, but I I wanted to note before we get into the, uh, as it were, the meat and potatoes, that, um, you know, American drama has an extremely long history of plays about immigrants and refugees. And a hundred years ago, they were plays about Jews and Italians and Irish, and now they're about Asian, Middle Eastern, and Latinx arrivals, new arrivals. Yeah, just two weeks ago, uh, Carrie and I discussed Mosque for Mosque concerning Syrian immigrants, as you said, Gary's bald sisters, about a mom and her t- two daughters who are Cambodian refugees, but who appear to have found a comfortable life in the USA. As the play opens, mom dies, though she does reappear in memory. And as you said, Gary, her long estranged adult daughters must attempt to reconcile. The older daughter is named him, not to be confused with gender identification. <laughs> I guess that's perhaps a, a, a traditional Cambodian name. Uh, so the older daughter is named him, and she's had a really, really bad year. She had a stillborn child. She's had a mastectomy and chemotherapy. Then mom dies in her arms. There's a rift in her marriage to Nate, and she carries a huge load of anger towards her kid sister, Sophia, who was far away when all of these events happened. But they've been at odds for years now, the play tells us, presents to us, and now they argue over things as basic as whether to bury mom or to cremate her. Now, as I said, both sisters didn't particularly engage me for reasons having to do with both the production and the play itself. But Carrie, before I get into that stuff, why don't I toss it to you for your initial reaction? We are truly doing this week because I absolutely love this show. I, I will also note that Steppenwolf generally resists the temptation to do anything resembling holiday programming. I think the nearest thing come in my memory is when they had a couple of Connor McPherson plays set at the holidays, The Seafarer and Dublin Carol, neither of which are particularly jolly. And in fact, I think back in the old Dueling Critics days, you and I talked about The Seafarer, Jonathan, you know, a long time yeah. ago when I was filling in for Kelly. Um, but I think that what they do find are shows that are somehow still relatable, and in part because of the thing that you identified. They are about familiar family conflicts, even if the families don't look like what they might have, you know, back in the days of Arthur Miller or whatever, what, they, what, what, uh, what the conflict is about. What I think I liked about this play, and I, I hope that I'm going to articulate this well, is that I think it moves with, for my, from my experience and from how I, I felt it, you know, was that it moves with astonishing skill between hilarity and tragedy. A point that I'm not sure that you brought up plot-wise is that him and Ma, as they call their mother, both went through the death camps, let's call them the labor camps of the Khmer Rouge under Pol Pot in the 1970s in Cambodia. Uh, Him was obviously a child. Her father, Ma's husband, died in the camp. Sophia never experienced that. So there is that split of the people who have been through tremendous, you know, upheaval, unbelievable horror, and the person who's been more protected. But I think what I liked about the play is that 
we learn a great deal about their experiences, but it's in this sort of matter-of-fact way. It doesn't feel to me as if Chum stops it and says, okay, now I'm going to do this you know, incredibly long, tortured monologue about everything we went through in the camps. It's like the everyday squabbles between these people <laughs> and this shared trauma, or shared at least between him and Ma, is always present. And they're kind of ha- operating at the same time. I think it's a really hard thing to do. And from my experience, I felt it did it very well. But I'm curious to hear what, what some of your issues with it might be, Jonathan. Okay. First, about the production itself. Now, you and I saw different performances. We were not there at the same show, mm-hmm. the same night. It's being, the Ball Sisters is being promoted as a comedy but it is not a comedy. It is most definitely a drama. And uh, that was certainly apparent to, to the performance I saw and the reaction of the audience to it. And, but if it's being promoted as a comedy, it means that audiences may come with mistaken expectations. And next, and this is going to sound odd, the stage is too big for this play. This is an intimate five-character play. And uh, Andrew Boyce's scenic design, which is very good on its own merits, shows three rooms of a modern, well-furnished home, and they are larger. The footprint is larger than life-size on Steppenwolf's enormous new oval arena stage. So the actors must traverse unnatural distances across the set or to enter and exit. And this really grated on me and had an effect on how I responded to the whole play. As for the play itself, you know, uh, they really, you know, unless I missed something, uh, and I don't think I did, uh, Ma and and, uh, him, her oldest daughter, really do not give us very much specific detail about what happened in Cambodia and about life in the camps. That's not what the play is about. And I think that the playwright, Vichet Chum, needs to decide whether the play is about Cambodian culture and its legacy or about a pair of sisters who are at war with each other. He tries to do both, and for me, neither one lands solidly because the two issues aren't related to each other. But I think Um, they are. I would disagree with you on that. I think the fact that this trauma is present is one of the things that, in in surprising ways, does give some humor to to the events of the play, because Ma is just not reacting the way we might expect. But I think that we're looking at that from the perspective of people who have not been through this kind of trauma. I think, again, this goes back to the idea that both these stories are existing simultaneously. And for people who are refugees, for people who have been traumatized, I don't think it's a great leap of empathy to imagine that they also joke, that they they know that they've been through these pains, but they don't feel the need to keep reliving it because it, it never goes away. They don't need to relive it because they're living it, but they're also living all these other things. As you mentioned, the the, uh, the, the rift in the marriage that him is going through, the, the breast cancer. You know, it's not like one thing ends and then another tragedy starts. They all sort of compound or they kind of build on each other, and yet you still find ways to sing music. Uh, there is one particular song that provi- has been providing an earworm for me all week. Um, I won't say more about that because it would be a bit of a spoiler. Um, you know, and I think that that's also played out. There is a Syrian refugee, you mentioned Mosque for Mosque, Jonathan, who has formed a friendship with Ma. And even though he's much younger, he's a college student, um, he continues to help out him with taking her to chemo, mowing their lawn. And there is a bonding that's happened because they both in their own ways, understand what it is to be a refugee. Even though those stories, their, their particular, the particulars of those stories are different, that feeling of, I'm always going to carry this, but I also have to deal with the fact that my little sister is an annoying person, <laughs> uh, permeates what they do. So it worked for me. And I, I don't know that um, I, would, I would argue necessarily that the staging always works. I do think sometimes the in-the-round production meant that there were moments that I felt that I was missing. I don't know that necessarily it was about the size. I think it was more just about where I was sitting and what I could see at a particular time, perhaps. This is Steppenwolf's newest stage, their arena stage. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I've only seen so far, it's been open about less than a year, and I've seen two productions. And the first one was a Chekhov play. Chekhov has, you know, 12, 15 characters in a show. There are all the servants and hangers-on beside the main characters, and they come and go, and there are always people filling the stage. And I didn't have a sense that the stage was was enormous. And with this show, 
I sat and I looked and I said, my goodness, that stage must be 40 or 50 feet from one end to another. It's oval shaped, so lengthwise. And that is a really, really big, a big stage. Um, but particulars of the play, I don't think that the playwright ever explains why him and Sophia have been at odds for so long. I understand perfectly him's immediate anger with the emotional and physical issues related to chemotherapy, but I've never seen, I didn't hear, I didn't feel a root cause for the sisters' divide, which goes back who knows how many years to childhood. And the fact that one was born in Cambodia and the other was born in the U.S. just doesn't cut it as a defining reason for me. Um, it worked for me, though, I think. And I think you say, what, where were they divided? My question would be, when were they ever together? Like, it almost feels as if they had, they did have two very separate lives. And there is that uh, speech right at the beginning where Ma talks about how she had invested in Sophia. She was pregnant with Sophia at the time of the liberation of, 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 of those camps. That was, her new, that was her new hope. And him had been separated from her, and she didn't recognize him when she first saw him come back. So I think that's it, that they were divided through no fault of their own from an early time. I look at it as the play is like, this is their way of, this is, we are finally going to come together. It's not that we were close, we had a rift, and now we're coming back together. It's like, we have never actually known how to talk to each other. We have never actually been able to occupy the same emotional plane. And now our mother is gone. And we have to start figuring out how to work that out. That that resonated with me, maybe because I am a youngest child. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'm 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 a youngest child too. But there were only two of us, and my older sibling is a sister. And uh, there have been times when we have had to work to have a relationship with each other, or at least to have a positive relationship with each other. And uh, and we have because we finally arrived at the idea that we have more things that bring us together than we do right. that separate us, and you choose to emphasize the positive yeah, rather right. than potential so, well, I negative. guess my point would be it's not always some big defining thing that separates people. There could, well, it could okay. be, you know, it could be, a, you know, a betrayal of some sort. Um, but mostly I think it's just people getting through their days. You know, I think there's definitely the idea that Sophia has been kind of more the, the free spirit. She's working as a photographer. She's come back, and I don't think this is a spoiler. She's pregnant, which obviously creates all kinds of feelings in him because she has not been able to have a child, and that has been her deepest desire. You know, there's I think there's a line that I really quite liked in the play uh, where um, I think it's Sophia says to to her sister, you know, Mom always, Ma always said, Kimarujan, you know, invaded on New Year's, and that means that we we sing, you know, we celebrate and we mourn in the same voice. And I think, although it may not always work, I think that attempt, um, for me, really landed for the most part with Bald Sisters. And we okay, should, I well, guess, note, in case it's not obvious, but now that the title yeah. comes from the fact that they are, in fact, both bald. Uh, him has lost her hair due to chemotherapy, and as a nod to Buddhist uh, mourning rituals, uh, Sophia has shaved her head. So. Yeah. Well, the play runs about 100 minutes straight through, and I will tell you that I began losing interest at about the one-hour mark because the play was still explaining who people are and their backstories rather than moving the characters forward. This is how I strongly felt. Rather than telling me a story, it still was explaining circumstances of who, what, where, and when. Um, and, you know, and I have to say the, the actors are not at fault at all. Uh, Jennifer Lim and Francesca Fernandez-McKenzie are compelling as him and Sophia. And Wai Ching Ho has great charm as mom. And she provides most of the play's humor. And there are humorous moments, despite the fact, as I said, that it very clearly is a, is a, is a drama, I, 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 not a heavy tragedy, but a drama right. and not a, co a comedy. I, I think yeah. that one of my favorite points is where she she has a repeating thing where she's about to say something quite biting to her kids. You know, she something like, I shouldn't be saying this, but I'm going to say it. <laughs> and she has this great self-awareness where at one point I think she says this to Seth, the, the Syrian refugee with whom she struck up a friendship. You know, I can say, I'm paraphrasing, but basically like, I can say terrible things and people will just laugh because I'm a, you know, I'm an old Asian woman, so they just think it's cute. So she understands 
how stereotypes work to her benefit sometimes. So. Yeah, yeah, well, she said she could say anything she wants because she's an an old woman. Not, not mm-hmm. that she's an old Asian woman. I, sh- I and, think she know, did say Asian. I'd have to check the, uh, but I wrote that yeah, down. You know, so I well, think that's in the script. Know, because, but... because I noted, you know, because of the fact, as you know, Carrie, that I have uh, begun to develop just a touch of gray in my hair. You know, so I was like, <laughs> hey, hey, just a touch. Right now, you know right. that. that I'm an old guy, and I can say anything I want to. Is that gray uh, due to me? Have I, am I the cause of that gray, Jonathan? Have, no, we, been, started, have we had a rift between us all these years? It started with Kelly. Believe me, it started with Kelly. <laughs> Any, anyway, I would say, obviously, certainly, the Cambodian diaspora has moving stories to tell, particularly with the, the grim you know, uh, late 20th century, mid and late 20th century history of the country. But I, for my money, I have seen better plays about siblings and better plays about refugees. And that, regrettably, is my bottom line, even though I like the actors in it. Although I do think it's interesting, we have seen quite a few plays. Now, Lauren Yee is Chinese-American, not Cambodian, but her play, Cambodian Rock Band, at Victory Gardens a few years ago, addressed the diaspora. Um, Queen Nguyen, who is a Vietnamese-American playwright whose parents were refugees, did, uh, I think, a, a splendid job with Viet Gone, which Writers Theater did a few years ago. Yes. But I think in some ways also combined humor with, you know, with the actual pain of leaving behind your old life, your old family, knowing you will never see them again, and coming to a country where, you know, people don't really actually understand what happened in your country and, you know, bring all kinds of assumptions to the table. Uh, so I think it's it's quite, I mean, just in the aggregate, not speaking specifically about what our differing feelings on this play might be, but I think we would both agree that it's been a very refreshing trend um, of late that plays like this are not only getting done, but getting getting done at large theaters. And this, I think this play has been in development at Steppenwolf for a while. Uh, they seem to be keeping a very strong commitment to new work, um, which is not their initial role. I mean, obviously, they've been a good theater for new plays, but they're not specifically a new play theater. But I would I would think you and I would both agree over the last 10, 15 years, that's really been particularly where they've, uh, they've focused a lot of attention. So a split decision. You, the listener, can make up your own mind. Steppenwolf Theater's Bald Sisters continues through January 15th at the company's new in the round ensemble theater space. And before we wrap up, Jonathan, you have a pick I do, I do, indeed. And, uh, you know, Broadway in Chicago, the big commercial presenter down in the loop, has, uh, in the late fall, brought back a string of big popular successes that have played played Chicago previously. Uh, The Wicked was here for a number of weeks and just closed a couple of weeks ago. The Lion King is here again now and continuing through January 14th. And a third, Dear Evan Hansen, just opened last week and is here through December 31st. Uh, this is the national tour of Dear Evan Hansen, a play that speaks to and certainly is about the difficulties, uh, certain difficulties of being adolescent and uh, family concerns. It's about a young adolescent who commits suicide and the reaction of various characters and various ways to that suicide. And uh, the title person, Evan Hansen, is not the one who commits suicide. A lot of people know the show, so this is this is no secret. And this is really a very, very good return production. It's a good company. So it's my recommendation. Dear Evan Hansen, return visit through December 31st at the Nederlander Theater. Another knee-slapper feel-good for the holidays. <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. Uh, feel-good indeed, right. Okay. We will survive. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're, you're welcome, welcome, Gary. I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the arts section. There's no shortage of holiday-themed theatrical productions this time of year. Here in the Chicago area, a lot of holiday-flavored shows have become family traditions. And we all know about the Nutcracker and A Christmas Carol. But a relatively young play about a toy soldier with one leg is winning over audiences with its positive message of perseverance. 
Looking Glass Theater premiered The Steadfast Tin Soldier in 2018 and has brought the play back every December, except in 2020 when, you know, we were all sheltering in place. Based on a Hans Christian Andersen story, the play's themes are universal no matter the time period, but I think they're especially relevant in our current moment. In the story, a toy soldier missing a leg falls in love with a paper ballerina. But a stream of characters with bad intentions and a series of unfortunate events keeps them apart. Despite the constant adversity, not only does the soldier not give up, he remains positive throughout the journey. I recently caught up with acclaimed Chicago-based theater artist Mary Zimmerman to talk about the steadfast tin soldier. She adapted the story for stage and is directing the current production of the play, which is running through January 8th. What initially attracted you to this uh, Hans Christian Andersen story? They say that Steadfast Tin Soldier is the only story of Hans Christian Andersen's collection that he actually originated. In other words, these were folk tales, known stories that he brings into the form, the literary form that we know them from. But they think that Steadfast is his own. It doesn't have a prior source. And it's so much about something that I think every, almost every human being feels which we feel that maybe there's something a little wrong with us that's different from other people and that is somehow something we have to overcome, yet it has this phenomenal sort of message of just put one foot in front of the other, even if you only have one foot, you know, just sort of keep going, be steadfast. And I liked, I liked that sentiment a lot, and I sort of identified, and I think a lot of people do, with the kind of miniature epic quality of it where he's tossed around by fate, adventures happen to him, and he just has to sort of keep his chin up and persist. And eventually his adventures sort of come full circle and restore him home in a way. So it's all it's all of those things. And I thought it was potentially very, very visual. And so I read in the program about your thought process creating the narrative for something yeah. without a lot of dialogue. Is that something where you have to completely change uh, your development process, the way you think of staging something, or, or did that come pretty naturally? Well, it comes pretty naturally because I've always had moments in my shows where there isn't any talking generally and things are shown visually. I've always paid a lot of attention to transitions and made them very much part of the show, even though there's no speaking, but make them visually interesting and sort of storytelling. But this was a unique challenge. I mean, just because it only had a couple lines of, of spoken words in it. And generally, when you're adapting something, you might look for something that has a lot of dialogue in it, right? Because that's the medium of the theater, is dialogue, is people speaking to each other. This had almost none. And when I noticed that, I thought, why do I not? I, I might try and do it with absolutely none, with no speaking at all, purely visually, just visual storytelling. And that idea immediately was sort of frightening and exciting and felt very right. And it's been super joyful. But yes, the process is different. No no script to this moment exists for this show. There's no script. The musical score, which is, you know, constant throughout, is the only calling script. The stage manager follows that and has notes written in when certain things happen. But there's no... There's no written script. <laughs> Though that's not to say it's not completely worked out. You know, from night to night, it has a kind of great consistency to it because it, it's so formed by the music. And we always have the music in the room. We never rehearsed without the music. Uh, we were learning the pianists and the composers were sort of coming up with the music as we were coming up with the action. And they, they worked in a kind of figure eight with each other, each influencing the other. The actors started to time themselves to the music, and the music started to accent what the actors were doing. So it was a very different process, because there's no lines to learn, and there were no lines for me to write. <laughs> Just actions to conceive. Right. You know? So is that something where you, uh, do you storyboard it out? You know, interestingly, I did a little bit. I, I drew about maybe 12 very primitive drawings of how, how I thought certain things would happen. And one of the 
the unusual challenges of it, this never happens in the theater, is I was worried it would be too short. That never happens. That never, ever happens. And normally when I'm putting something together, I, I do start with no script and I write it every night and bring it in every morning as we're working for the actors. So I'm constantly, worriedly asking how much time have we do we have so far and, and judging that against how far we are in the story and worrying that it's getting too long. But in this, I was worried that we weren't going to make an hour, you know, and I wanted to make an hour, and we we finally did. So that was a kind of um, one and only time in the theater that you're worried about something being too short. <laughs> one of the, the neat visual things, I mean, the whole show is... is beautiful but uh, one of the, the neat things is how you're able to to play with scale and, and go from yeah. different sizes i just had to you know it was kind of necessary right so sometimes the tin soldier's played by an actor and he's full size and then sometimes he's like 18 inches big and sometimes he's like and he's a prop and sometimes he's like six or eight inches big and is a prop and the reason for that is that way i can have I can keep switching scales into kind of close-up and long shot, and you, you see him as a real person, and then you see him as a hapless little toy in the world, in a way. And that, that creates a lot of um, pathos around him, partly. But it also allows me to have, like, a giant baby playing with his new gift of little tin soldiers, because in real life those things would be just, like, two inches big, right? So we have a giant baby playing with these 18-inch soldiers, and then when he's out in the world with, like, real grown-ups, he shrinks to sort of eight inches. But when he's interacting with other toys, he's full-sized, um, like the paper ballerina. He's the size of the other toys. And I think something about that, you know, the audience just sort of enjoys that. I have to say, as uh, I have a 22-month-old at, at home, so the baby, oh. uh, I don't know how old the baby is supposed to be in the, this story, but some <laughs> of his mannerisms, you know, rang, rang true yeah. for me. Not that my son is a terror or anything, but... Uh. Yeah, the little toddler, as we call him, because he's some, at, we, when we first see him, he's giant. He's a giant puppet with a giant head and hands, but then he's kind of life-size, and I, I think we think of him as, like, two to three years old, two and a half, maybe, so close, close to your child a lot, yeah. That scene, um, the little puppet that can't find his toys because yeah. it's fallen out the window, <laughs> the way his little feet are so frantic <laughs> and how insistent he is in going to look for his toy, the little fit that he throws by stamping his feet, is it's the audience just sort of, it's extremely recognizable for some reason. Just the motion of that little puppet is really exquisite, I think. It is, it is for sure. So you're, you've already referenced uh the music and, and what an important yeah. role it plays, and so that's you know that's where the sound is coming from. Did you have uh, an idea of, of what you wanted the the music to be for this when you were conceiving it? I guess I did. I mean, I certainly wanted it to be cheerful. And when I try to explain the show to people, I say what it's most like is sort of a like a I hope one of the like really good old Warner Brothers cartoons that don't have any words in them, but they always have a soundtrack, right? They always have music. And the music is quite up-tempo. I think of it as sort of music hall-ish. I don't even know exactly what I mean. <laughs> but it's sort of up-tempo. It has a, a comic or jolly air to it. Every scene has its own tune. But within that, it's quite repetitive because you don't want it to dominate or draw too much attention to, uh, to itself away from sort of translating the story that you're watching, right? It doesn't want to ever upstage the, the visual thing that's happening. It has variations in the A and B parts and so forth. And it's my longtime composer, Andre Plus, our original pianist, and also Amanda Dennard, who did arrangements. And I can't say enough about the music and the presence of the four live musicians, how important that is to me. 
I mean, we maybe could do it to tape, but it's an entirely different feel having them there. And they're very commenting with all kinds of little details on the action, and they interact with the action a little bit at times, too, which is very delightful to me. Yeah, that was kind of a fun surprise, the kind of (laughs) breaking of the wall. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Chicago-based theater director Mary Zimmerman about her play, The Steadfast Tin Soldier. And I don't think this is a, a spoiler, but what, what can you tell me about that final song? The final song, so at the end, it's curtain call, and the audience generally thinks it's over, but we hold up a little sign that says final song. And I kind of always thought, because I've got a couple really good singers in the cast, and, you know, I make my own shows, and I make them for the cast that's in them, basically. They're cast before they're written, in a way. I don't know. I just felt it was somehow fitting to break that silence. You know, you've seen these five people sort of restrained in a certain way for an hour, and then all of a sudden they're singing to you. And not only that, but it becomes very explicit what the kind of little message is of the story and I always knew there was going to be a song, but I, I kept delaying writing the lyrics, and I got behind. And we actually went through several previews the first year with no song at the end. And then when I finally came in with it, I could tell the actors were grumpy about it. Like, here we are, we've got the show under its belt, we're kind of up and running, and now we have to learn a song. <laughs> and yet, now it's it's unimaginable without the song. I want that song sung at my funeral, frankly. Like, I love, <laughs> I love that song so much. And it's it's sort of witty, I think, but the message is, no matter what happens, just just always be steadfast. There's a line in it, it matters how you go. And adults will understand that to be literally, in part, how you die, because, spoiler alert, you know, dark things happen in the, in the play. But um, children, I think, sort of don't quite hear that, or they hear that as, it matters how you go along. But I am introducing the idea of, like, courage just for its own sake, just for your own sake, to have dignity, to have courage, to be steadfast, to be self-contained, that you do have agency even in times that you think you don't, and the agency you have is in how you react. And the steadfast in soldier is always steadfast, even when he is in impossible, impossible circumstances. And at the beginning, you know, he meets a ballerina and he thinks that they're alike because he thinks she only has one leg at first because she's standing on one point. Um, But then he realizes that she has two. And she kind of teaches him to dance, which he can't do very well, right, because he only has one leg, keeps falling over and so forth. So she has this great gracefulness. But in the end, when they're both kind of meeting their end, she keeps wanting to crumple and... um, She doesn't want to do anything but sort of give in. And he leads her in a mirror of the dance they did when they met. In other words, they each have what the other doesn't. He may not have physical grace and ability like her, but he has character and he has courage. And he sort of teaches her that in the last moment, which is really moving. It's just super moving, I think. And again, I don't want to get into spoilers and but there are some of the other characters um they're not traditional villains but they're you know they, yes. there are some characters that do bad things and i think there's a couple lines yes. in the in the song even referencing that yes. they, maybe they're missing something yes i say the the brother and the nursemaid the goblin and the that old rat those are sort of some of the the bad guys in it i think i i misquoted myself but anyway those characters ending with and the rat they all are missing something too that's why they act like that i mean i think that's it it helps you when you go through life and you encounter bad-tempered people to remember that they're being that way because something is lacking in their life or when they were little they're missing something and this is their way of coping you know, that helps you deal with difficult people, I think. And I think it's absolutely true. I, I think it's true. Oh, for sure. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It's a good good thing to keep in mind. I mean, there's kind of this universal quality of this idea of uh, being unwavering even when facing, like, unimaginable adversity. And, and, yes. and this, yeah. And, and so, like, each person's going to, like, kind of bring their own thing when they when they watch it and interpret it differently. Yeah. But I was thinking, like, during the, the pandemic, it was almost kind of like this... 
even like yes. a, in a macro sense, everyone yes. watching. I don't know, did you get you that know, sense? You know, it happened first in, I think, 2018 and then 2019, and then we were going to do it in 2020, but then obviously nothing happened in 2020. And, and yet, you know, I think everyone feels even before the pandemic that the country is sort of unsettled and a little adrift and polarized and so forth. We're not completely happy with everything, obviously. And it felt very pertinent then when, when they sing this sort of chorus about just always be steadfast. The very first line of the song is, although the times are very bad, you still must be steadfast. And that post-pandemic, I think, also, you know, it feels even more filled there. You know, we just have to, you know, put one foot in front of the other, <laughs> as it were. Right. And but- life will always have adversity. Like, it just, I think we kind of long for, or hope for, or dream for this, like, moment when there's going to stop being adversity, and there isn't. There, that moment doesn't really exist. Right. You know, there will right. always be difficulties to deal with. You know, we have the Nutcracker and a Christmas Carol, our holiday staples, and locally we have some other holiday stage traditions that come back every year. Uh, Did you think Mm -hmm. that the Steadfast Tin Soldier would become this annual production? I mean, I confess that I sort of hoped it would when I was, I, I had some ideas about that even starting out. The fact is that the story isn't really very centered on Christmas, except that perhaps the Tin Soldiers are a gift to a child at, at Christmas. It sort of takes place at Christmas time. But other than that, it's not particularly, or it's sort of after the first couple scenes, we sort of forget about that. And one thing I'm sort of eager to do in the public's mind is differentiate it from Nutcracker because some of the pictures can look alike, like our tin soldiers in that red soldiery costume with the cross braces or whatever they're called, exactly as you know the Nutcracker is. He's a soldier as well. But the story's very, very different, and the method of telling, it's, and it's not a ballet, and it's extremely funny, actually, and then hopefully super moving. Um, but I, I do worry about sort of being invisible because some of our pictures look like, oh, that's just nutcra- there's another nutcracker, and I'm going to the big nutcracker, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I am eager to differentiate ourselves from that. Sure. It's unique to kind of describe what this production is, you know, with no dialogue. It so it's is. kind of you have to experience it, it for yourself. But Mary, it's a pleasure talking to you. Well, thanks for coming and thanks for paying attention to it. We super, super appreciate it. So thank you. That's Mary Zimmerman, the adapter and director of Looking Glass Theater's The Steadfast Tin Soldier. It's running through January 8th. This is the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. It's been a challenging few years for the restaurant industry, but there is optimism that some of the major hurdles from the past couple of years are subsiding. The pandemic limited the dining industry's busiest time of year the past two holiday seasons, but business appears to be booming again this year. I recently caught up with Chicago Magazine dining editor Amy Cavanaugh to talk about the current state of the local dining scene. We also took a closer look at the magazine's 30 favorite things to eat right now. Given what the the past two Decembers have been like in the dining industry, do you get a sense that local restaurants are embracing being somewhat back to normal this year? I think it's definitely feeling more normal than the past two years. I think that diners are ready to be back. I mean, I feel like most places I've been lately have been absolutely packed and every table's full. And, you know, it can be hard to get a reservation somewhere. I think diners are ready to be back and in full force. I think that restaurants, you know, there's still some residual, you know, problems from the pandemic, such as staffing is still difficult, both front of house and back of house. And so I think that um, some restaurants are maybe not on their end feeling as fully back as they'd like to. Yeah, that was one of the things I was curious about, because I think we talked about that last year, the, the employment numbers seem to be down. So anecdotally, are you seeing some issues with staffing? Yeah, you definitely are. And like, I think, you know, I think it's kind of restaurants at all levels um, are, are, you know, seeing uh, it's harder to hire than it once was. Um, You know, I think 
a lot of people who worked in the industry have, you know, over the past couple of years, they left and went into a new industry or, you know, some folks left town. I think that that's probably going to continue to be a problem for a while longer. But then, you know, on the flip side, I've gone to some other, some restaurants recently that have had, you know, tons of staff and felt very well staffed up. um, And so that feels like a good sign. Yeah. And you mentioned every level. I've been to Starbucks and Chipotle's that are only accepting online orders, you know, no in-person ordering because of short staff. And then also been to some higher end restaurants where you can tell the, the wait staff is being stretched. So yeah, it's kind of like across the board. Yeah, that's a that's a good point with, uh, you know, online ordering is definitely something that has stuck. And I think that, you know, it's both, you know, order online, like through an app like Toast, or even, you know, when you go into a restaurant, um, you know, you might be presented with like a computer or a tablet or something that's like place your order here and then either pick it up or, or we'll bring it out to you. So those are definitely some pandemic things that have stuck. Side note, I've been to a couple restaurants where I can scan the QR code once I get the bill and just pay it on my phone. I, I enjoy that. I do too. <laughs> I, I'm, always, <laughs> I'm always delighted. I, I find that um, just really easy, um, an easy way to end the meal. Yeah, not to, not that I don't want to interact with the wait staff again, but it just seems to be like an easy way to you can kind of leave when you're ready. And then just the the last thing as far as uh, what we're seeing, do you think the uh, you know we had this wave of pandemic related closures? The, I know the restaurant industry itself is just volatile, no matter what's going on. But as far as pandemic related things, do you think that's kind of like slowed? I would say so. I think that. Um... I think we'll probably still see some closures for places that, you know, maybe couldn't bounce back. But I think the kind of fast and furious pace has has really slowed down. And we've seen so many new openings as well that um, I really think we're past the worst of it. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the arts section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Chicago Magazine dining editor Amy Cavanaugh. The uh, current issue of Chicago Magazine puts a big spotlight on uh, your team's 30 favorite things to eat right now. Uh, is this piece as fun to put together as I'm imagining it to be? It is. It's, <laughs> a, real, <laughs> it's a really fun list. Um, you know, I we start by... Uh, I send an email to all of the food contributors and say, what are the dishes, you know, from the past year that you can't stop thinking about, that you can't wait to go have again? Um, and then we start narrowing down and seeing, you know, what dishes overlap. And that's, that's fun to see, too, the dishes that multiple people are like, that one is a great dish. I'm just imagining, yeah, all these submissions coming in and then you being like, well, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to try this for for work purposes just to make sure. Yeah. <laughs> So one of the things that, that you personally wrote about in the, in the piece uh, that caught my eye was this chicken sandwich at a place called Nine Bar in Chinatown. And I know for a chicken sandwich to make the list, it, it must be good. Yeah, so Nine Bar is a, it's the first cocktail bar in Chinatown, and it's really fantastic. You know, they do really great cocktails with Asian influences, and there's a food menu with um, some very fun bites including this grilled chicken sandwich. And, you know, we have such an amazing fried chicken sandwich scene that to have, like, a fun grilled chicken sandwich was such a nice change of pace. Um, and this sandwich has some uh, Cambodian influences uh, marinated in ginger and lemongrass, and it's topped with a green papaya slaw. So it just tastes really fresh and light, and it's so delicious. Sounds great. Speaking of chicken, I've had the fried chicken at Split Rail, but uh, you wrote about its charred broccoli salad. This one was really fun. Um, I definitely, as a kid, my mom would make a, a broccoli raisin bacon salad uh, that was just so delicious. And this version is, you know, kind of a, an updated take on it with charred broccoli that's then chilled and it's tossed in a dressing of red onion, uh, pickled raisins pepitas and dill and it's just like really creamy and tangy and it's a really fun starter you also highlighted a uh, filipino noodle dish at a uh, wicker park based restaurant uh is it wazwan yeah yeah this is a, a really fun restaurant uh, it was actually on our best new restaurants list um that came out in uh april 2022 
and um, he has a tasting menu in back, and in front he has a counter service uh, spot that focuses on different Southeast Asian cuisines. And this is a Filipino noodle dish in a loban, and it's bowl of rice noodles in this extremely delicious turmeric coconut sauce. And then he uses whatever seafood is fresh that day. And so when I had it, it was um, a beautiful, crispy piece of salmon. But he's also made it with clams and, and other seafood that he gets in. So really a, a great dish for winter. Yeah, I saw the picture in the magazine. It looked amazing. And then, you know, we just kind of highlight a few of the things uh, that you wrote about. But there's 30, and they're all, they all look amazing. And you can find that in the current issue of Chicago Magazine and uh, online at chicagomag.com. So you mentioned that Best New Restaurants issue that came out this past spring, some time has passed. What are some of your, your favorite restaurants that have opened up this year? My very favorite is Obelix, which um, actually has a dish on that the list of the best things we ate this year. It is a modern French restaurant from the siblings who run Les Bouchons. And so they're doing, you know, Classic French hair, but with like an international twist. One of my favorite dishes is a steak tartare that has the flavors of banh mi. And so it has like a similar like, you know, herbs and pickles and things like that. Um, so it's just really fresh and fun. Um, the restaurant is just, it's really lively. Um, I've been three times already, which is, you know, a sign of a restaurant <laughs> that I really <laughs> enjoy. So wow. Yeah, and actually I recently went up. Uh, just a week ago. And so they're, they're doing just a really great job. And I feel like the food is really exciting. So that's definitely my favorite. Public and quality bread. We're having such a great bakery scene at the moment. And uh, this is the first storefront. So public and quality bread has existed for a while. Ed was really just offering um, wholesale. And so, you know, you could find their baguettes around town at like grocery stores or Foxtrot. But Earlier this year, they um, opened a storefront in West Town, and so you can stop by and pick up the bread, but also lots of pastries, and then uh, the sandwiches are really, really good. Every day at one, there's a himon burr that hits the uh, the counter, and that's <laughs> worth checking out. Such a good one. And then Loaf Lounge is another uh, bakery that I really enjoy from... Uh, duo who are uh, married and longtime members of the industry and they're just doing great bread and breakfast sandwiches and the most delicious uh, ham and cheese croissants and so that's in Avondale that's another great new spot. It's funny that you mentioned the publican quality breads because I was just on Google Maps I was mapping out uh, I was like having to travel between two places for interviews and I was looking and I saw public and quality breads like pop up and I'm like what they have a storefront and so I'm yeah like, okay next time I'm gonna have to to stop by because I, I thought they were just wholesale so great development there uh last thing anything uh you're looking forward to in the new year um I think we've got some some fun openings um coming I think the one I'm probably most excited about is Lace Lux, which uh last I heard was going to be a January opening um, that is going to be from Daniel Rose, who uh, is a kind of a local. He's uh, from the suburbs, but um, kind of made his name in Paris with some restaurants and has a wonderful restaurant in New York, um, Lake Cuckoo. And so he's coming back to town to open a restaurant with uh, Boca Group. And I think that's going to be the winter's must-get reservation. Oh, yeah, for sure. I made a, an effort uh, a few years back when I was in Paris to eat at one of his restaurants. So, yeah, oh, nice. great, great that he's coming back to his, his hometown. Well, Amy, it's always uh, a pleasure to, to talk to you. People can find your, your writing at uh, chicagomag.com. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's Amy Cavanaugh. She's the dining editor for Chicago Magazine. You can check out her work at chicagomag.com, and you can find the 30 Favorite Things to Eat Right Now piece in the current issue of Chicago Magazine. That's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section, but remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website, The artssection.org there you can find past episodes and individual 
features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the stories you hear on the program. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday, Christmas Day, for another edition of the Arts Section right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. Frank Sinatra's birthday was earlier this week. We'll say goodbye with one of his classic holiday tunes. I love those jingles.